0: From the Great Jonathan District Talking Newspaper Association, welcome to Volume 40, Number 40 of Grapevine. This is online version number 28, recorded on the 2nd of October 2020. In this week's news, trouble at our local ambulance trust, more poultry problems from COVID 19, and the Aikles Strait gets a mention during Prime Minister's questions in Parliament. Hi, I'm Graham, your presenter, and joining me from home is this week's newsreader Margaret, plus contributions from Dusty, the other Margaret, and Julie. As usual, though, we start with some news with Margaret.
1: Hello, everyone, I'm Margaret, and I'm bringing you the news ably assisted by the trusty trio of Dusty, Margaret and Julie. And if that wasn't enough excitement, I shall be meandering through the Mercury of June 1971 and just wait till you hear what was number one in June 1971. You will either love it or hate it. So, if you're sitting comfortably, I'll begin with the first part of the news. Inspectors uncover sexual abuse and bullying at Ambulance Trust. Bullying was normalised at the region's ambulance service and its leaders failed to act when staff were accused of sexual predatory behaviour towards patients, inspectors revealed today. In a damning report released this week, Regulator, the Care Quality Commission CQC, found the leadership of the East of England Ambulance Service Trust East, fostered abuse. Following the inspection, the East has been placed into special measures meaning it would be given extra support by NHS England and ordered to make changes. Chief Executive Dorothy Hussain pledged to turn the troubled organisation around when she took over in 2018. Last year it was given the second lowest rating of Requires Improvement by the CQC. Its staff were praised for providing outstanding care but its leadership was rated as inadequate. When more concerns were raised earlier this year, the CQC returned. Inspectors visited in June and July after tip-offs from whistleblowers about the safeguarding of patients and staff from sexual abuse, harassment and inappropriate behaviour. They found that the East's leadership was combative and defensive when challenged staff were undervalued not empowered to raise concerns and treated disrespectfully when they spoke out about problems they said in a statement they found some of the east's management were not up to the job they said they lacked adequate skills knowledge and experience for their roles their inability was compounded by their weak use of processes to understand and respond to the challenges they faced," inspectors added. These shortcomings manifest themselves in the Trust's failure to learn from sexual harassment directed towards staff in one of its workplaces, including after recommendations were made in an independent report. Leaders also failed to act decisively when staff faced allegations of predatory sexual behaviour towards patients. After the inspection, the CQC used its enforcement powers to order east to overhaul its safeguarding processes. The CQC also referred the Trust to the Equality and Human Rights Commission EHRC, due to a potential breach of the Equality Act. NHS England said it already begun to put a package of support measures in place. After England's Chief Inspector of Hospitals, Ted Baker, recommended that the Trust entered special measures. He said, leaders did not have the oversight of the challenges they faced, and some senior managers did not have the right skills and ability for their roles. He said, there was a negative culture, and bullying was normalised, and put patient and staff safety at risk. Mr Baker added, we continue to monitor the Trust closely, we will return to expect it to determine whether improvements have been made. The CQC has told the East it must make several improvements, including its safeguarding procedures, how it deals with allegations against staff and undertaking proper pre-employment checks. They must also review the safety of private ambulances they use and address long-standing concerns regarding bullying and harassment within the organisation. Norwich South Labour MP Clive Lewis said, It's almost beyond comprehension how a service so trusted to come to our aid when we are most vulnerable could also fail to protect patients and staff from sexual abuse inappropriate behaviour and harassment. My heart goes out to everyone who has been touched by what I think it's fair to describe as a fully-fledged scandal at this Trust. My staff and I will do our best to support any constituents who have been affected, and I will keep a close eye on developments. In their reply, the ambulance service says, The East said its leadership has taken steps to improve the culture, strengthen safeguarding and tackle inappropriate behaviour. Since the inspection, it has updated safeguarding policies and its complaints procedure. It will also survey all staff on their experience of the Trust's culture, including inappropriate behaviour. Chairman of EAST, Nicholas Scrivins, who was appointed in October 2019, said Today's report calls out where we need to improve and we will now do everything possible as fast as possible to make the improvements required. We are now working closely with the CQC, NHS colleagues and other partners to take action right now to address these concerns and put this right for the long term. Asked if the leadership would resign, she said, this leadership team has delivered improvements over the past year with better performance and more staff on the ground. But it is clear there is more to do on culture. A stable leadership team is an important part of driving cultural change. And we are getting extra support from the NHS and elsewhere to help the leadership team succeed. She added, it is clear from the CQC staff survey that the majority of staff at the Trust are proud to work for East. The role of the leaders is to make sure every member of the team feels that pride with the support and culture they deserve. Mercury analysis. Mercury analysis, leadership changes but problems remain. The East of England Ambulance Trust has lurched from one crisis to the next over the last few years, but several changes of management have failed to solve its problems. Its current chief executive, Dorothy Hussein, was appointed in 2018 and came in after a whistleblower released a dossier which claimed patients had died because of long response times over the previous winter under its last Chief Executive, Rob Morton. The Trust has long struggled to hit response time targets, particularly in rural areas. It also suffered from recruitment problems, something Ms Hussein recognised when she was appointed. Most recently, it was under the spotlight for staff welfare, after three employees died suddenly in 11 days last year in November. The inquest into one of the deaths, Luke Wright, found he had taken his own life and that again prompted the service to pledge changes. Escaped sheep, falling trees and flooding. How the Great Yarmouth area fared after torrential weather. Clean-up operations have run on into their fifth day. A stricken residents throughout the borough continue to reel from the worst September weather the county has seen in decades. Between Thursday and Sunday, Norfolk was lashed by gale force winds and torrential rain. In Great Yarmouth, one of the areas worst affected, this meant felled trees, sandstorms, flooded rivers and even runaway sheep. Acle parish councillor Jackie Clover, who runs Facebook group All About Acle, said a message came through on Friday from a resident named Andrew King telling her there were sheep in danger. She said, A fallen tree in the field by Pedro's restaurant had knocked open the gate. If just one of those sheep had decided to head towards Acre Bridge, we'd have had a real situation on our hands. This was 5pm in terrible conditions with all the commuters on their way back from Norwich. I decided to head down there in my high-vis jacket and a small group of us rounded them up in the torrential rain. We waited there until the owner arrived, who came with a chainsaw and mended the fence. I couldn't have lived with myself if I'd just left them there. You know that old adage, where one sheep bleeds, the rest will follow. It would have been a massacre. In hindsight, the whole thing must have looked almost comical. Likewise for Paul Rice, a volunteer flood warden and manager of the Broads Watch Facebook group, the past few days have been a manic time for the Broads. We're still dealing with floods around the rivers today, he said. It's pretty manic. The tide is locked in and the water can't go anywhere on the Ant, Burn and Fern. It's almost impossible to get under Potterheim and Ludham Bridge because the water levels are so high. And if someone can actually get under the bridges, if they drive even slightly too fast, it's forcing waves of water up into people's homes. In places like Roxham and Ludham, crews from Richardson's and Herbert Woods are ballasting their high boats to help get them moving again. In a statement, the Broads Authority revealed its rangers had cleared high fallen trees and raised sunken boats. They added, water levels are still high, with overtopping at moorings, making it very slippery. Please always wear a life jacket, take extra care when mooring and getting on and off boats. Meanwhile, in Galston, Flooding on Bellsmarsh Road and Dock Tavern Lane on Friday was another near miss for beleaguered residents. Adam Willis, who owns Bellsmarsh Garage, said, Flooding in this area has always been an issue for years, and you'd think the powers that be would have had a hold on it by now. There's some pumps near the Morrisons car park which are supposed to be automatic, and turn on when water reaches a certain float switch level. But normally we have to ring the water company to ask for them to be turned on manually and by that point it's too late. Miss Willis said this time the water was covering car wheels and edging up towards people's front doors. But it was nowhere near as bad as the 1990s when sewage spilt into his workshop. Meanwhile, Lucinda Bullimore and her family in Caister faced extreme weather of another kind. There was a sandstorm on the beach at the weekend. It looked like we were walking on the moon, she said. In response to the gusts and heavy rain, which is set to persist for the rest of the week, Great Yarmouth Borough Council has said its ground teams will be on the lookout for felled trees and other damages. In a statement, it said the Council responded to a number of wind-related issues, mostly fallen trees and branches, over the weekend, with a team out on both Saturday and Sunday. The Council's street cleansing and grounds team will be out as normal throughout the week for additional clean-up, while localised flooding will be dealt with by the County Council and the Highways Authority. Change the way offshore wind farms connect and save billions, report finds. A fresh approach to connecting offshore wind farms could save consumers £6 billion and half the amount of cables needed to be dug in coastal communities. The first report of its kind was found. National Grid, which is in charge of the country's energy infrastructure, published a report today into if offshore wind farms could be integrated rather than a new connection being created onshore for each one. An integrated solution has long been proposed by campaigners in Norfolk, who say that the construction of some of the world's biggest wind farms off our coast will cause untold damage to our countryside and disruption. At the moment, two huge cable trenches are planned, each 60 kilometres long, running from Haysborough to Necton and from Weybourne to Swordston to connect two wind farms. The approach explored in the National Grid report would end the need for these cable trenches and instead see the wind farms being connected to the grid on the coast. It found that this would save consumers 18% or £6 billion. The East of England would benefit more than any other region from the integrated solution, the report found, with savings of 30% or £2.3 billion. The amount of infrastructure built onshore would also be halved, as there could be fewer cables and landing points onshore. The report said. The majority of the technology required for the integrated option is available now, or will be by 2030, but they said underground cables with higher capacity needed to be developed. Any changes would come too late for the current wind farms planned off the Norfolk coast, called Hornsey Three, Vanguard and Boreas. Finton Sly, Director of National Grid ESO said Our initial analysis already shows the potential for significant cost savings and a reduced need for physical infrastructure but it's crucially important we hear from a variety of stakeholders in this consultation, including coastal communities, developers and transmission owners. These views will help shape recommendations and proposals as the project moves forward but this is about more than supplying power to people's homes. The grid is also the lifeline which will enable industries right across the economy to move away from fossil fuels and rely on clean electricity instead. Well, this is my meandering through the Mercury and I've been delving into the past again and this time I've chosen items from the Great Yarmouth Mercury of June 1971. The first thing that caught my eye was the headline, Urgent Need for New Library. Galston needs a new public library, but is there time to provide one before the local government merger with a new local authority, scheduled for April 1974? The borough librarian called the present library noisy, incongruous, dark, cramped and dusty. One problem following the committee is the possible redevelopment of the present site and adjoining land or a new site at Priory Gardens. If my memory serves me correctly, it was referring to the old library which occupied the site where the current one was eventually built next to the Tramway Public House on Lowestoft Road. And I can remember taking my very small daughter in there and the squeaky wooden floors and the high windows. Well, I loved it. And I loved the new one just as much. And nothing pleased me more than when the library opened after the lockdown. I missed my books. Another article on the changing face of Yarmouth and Galston. This time captioned, Bure Bridge scheme going well. Work on the £500,000 Bure Bridge Fullers Hill scheme is going well. The high point of the contract, the building of the bridge itself is due to begin in October when 15 pre-stressed concrete bridge beams each 100 feet long will be delivered. Another major task is to bring in about 18,000 tonnes of fill material to raise by 8 or 9 feet the level of the junction of North Quay when the big roundabout will be constructed. Now there must be a joke in here somewhere but the headline was crime and this headline was Raiders struck two village post offices." The total haul was two fruit pies. Okay go on say something silly because I can't think of anything. At Limpenhoe no money was left on the premises and at Freethorpe they appear to have taken to their heels at the appearance of the sub postmistress Alsatian you see crime doesn't pay does it <laughs> and this is how you can spend your money in 1971 Arnold's had a sale on Lady shoes for £4.25p crimpling trouser suits for £5.95p and furniture wise you could buy a three-piece suite for £52 and a dining suite for £53. I think 1971 was the year decimal coinage came in, but I can't remember. I guess it must have been. Now, if you were on the road, Pertwee and back were offering a 1969 Morris Minor for 555 pounds, and a 1970 Ford Capri 1600 GT XL for 1,190 pounds. An entertainment. The ABC had seats at 80p and 65p to see Norman Wisdom, Mrs Mills and Freddie Starr. Or you could go to the Marina Open Air Theatre where a bathing beauty contest was held. The winner to get £250 in cash. Now on the job front, Erie Electronics were advertising for operatives at £13 per week and Bolton and Paul wanted woodcutting machinists on the night shift paying £42 a week. And this was something dear to my heart because I belong to Gorston Flower Club, as many of you know. Now, way back in 1971, Yarmouth's Marine Parade gained an unusual two-day attraction, an exhibition of floral arrangements. It was staged by members of Great Yarmouth Flower Club at the Royal Hotel and its theme was Midsummer. An arrangement representing Midsummer Night's Dream was done by Mrs Corston, Mrs Sturrock, Mrs Daniels, and Mrs Beer, and took five hours to complete. Now, what were you listening to in June 1971? Right, number one in the hit parade was Chirpy Chirpy Cheep Cheep. All join in, thank you.
0: Margaret. A real earworm, that song, which has the distinction of having lyrics which have absolutely no useful meaning at all. Recorded by Middle of the Road, which is the best place for it, especially if there's a wide load approaching. (laughs) Anyway, it, it did reach number one in the charts, and so many people loved it. If you were one of them, my apologies for that comment. Well, Margaret has just about had enough time to draw a deep breath So off we go with part two of the news.
1: A47 Acle Strait duelling under Act of Consideration The long-called-for duelling of the A47 Acle Strait is under Act of Consideration, Prime Minister Boris Johnson said. Earlier this month, Highways England announced the scheme would not be brought forward under the government's next wave of road improvement schemes until at least 2030. The news met with outcry in the region, with campaigners frustrated they would not see the road dueled in their lifetimes. It came after Prime Minister Mr Johnson pledged he would get the road dueled during an interview with the Eastern Daily Press ahead of the December 2019 general election. But during the Prime Minister's questions in the House of Commons, On Wednesday, September the 30th, Jerome Mayhew, Broadland MP, asked the Prime Minister if this inexplicable decision would be revisited. He said, the A47 Eccles Strait is the main road, in fact the only road, that links Great Yarmouth to the great city of Norwich. It's a bottleneck and it's notoriously dangerous and there's been a campaign to duel it for at least 30 years. And yet the Highways Authority have just announced they have no plans, even to consider it for upgrade, until at least 2030. What can he do to give hope to the people of Broadland and Norfolk more widely than that its inexplicable decision will be revisited? Mr Johnson said the government was immensely ambitious about upgrading the country's road infrastructure. He told the House... I appreciate the temporary disappointment that he is experiencing, but this is a government that is immensely ambitious for the improvement of our transport infrastructure. And he added, active consideration is now being undertaken of that project again. I understand that parliamentary colleagues are meeting with Baroness Beer, the roads minister this week to discuss the options for additional schemes from 2025 onwards. Martin Willoughby, Chair of the A47 Alliance and Norfolk County Council's Cabinet Member for Highways, Infrastructure and Transport, said The fact that the duelling of the A47 Acle Strait remains very much on the Government's agenda is welcome news. It shows that the case for vital infrastructure improvements in Norfolk is being heard and it is heartening, particularly on the back of the Government's recent go-ahead for the Great Yarmouth Third River Crossing. Study after study has shown that full dueling of the A47 would bring hundreds of millions of pounds of benefits to the regional economy through new employment, enhanced productivity and lower costs. Dueling of the Acle Strait is an important part of that goal So we very much look forward to working with MPs to make this happen and to bring these long-awaited safety improvements into fruition. 18 more cases of coronavirus confirmed at Bernard Matthews site. Bernard Matthews had confirmed 18 new positive coronavirus cases at its processing facility near Halesworth bringing the total number of positive cases to 36. All affected members of staff from the site at Halton are now self-isolating at home and are being supported by Bernard Matthews and public sector agencies. So far, 123 members of staff have been tested or are due to be tested with most returning negative results. Food production and safety is unaffected. Officials from Suffolk County Council, Public Health Suffolk, Public Health England, Public Health Norfolk, East Suffolk Council, Norfolk and Waveney Clinical Commissioning Group and Bernard Matthews are working together to manage the situation. Stuart Keeble, Suffolk's Director of Public Health said, The swift and thorough work of our local contact tracers and staff working alongside Bernard Matthews, has quickly identified these additional cases and we've been able to advise them to self-isolation straight away. This will certainly help to reduce the spread of COVID-19. I would like to reiterate the reassurance I gave on Monday. This situation is being very carefully managed by all the partners working closely together. Teams from Norfolk and Suffolk are out in the community working with residents to provide advice and to support people who are affected and reminding them how to keep safe. David Edwards, Health Protection Consultant for Public Health England, said, We continue to work closely with the organisation, local authority and NHS partners, providing public health advice and making sure measures are in place to help prevent the spread of the virus. Close workplace contacts have been identified and given self-isolation advice. Bernard Matthews is following national guidance and ensuring that anyone with symptoms self-isolates for 10 days and their household members isolate for 14 days. Close contacts of confirmed cases are asked to self-isolate for 14 days even if they have no symptoms to avoid unknowingly spreading the virus. Bernard Matthews has had extensive controls in place to manage and reduce COVID-19 infections since March 2020. These are continuing and include regular temperature checks, staff working in bubbles COVID marshals, masks and visors, and social distancing throughout the site. A spokesperson for Bernard Matthews said, we are grateful for the help of all local agencies and we fully support their objectives to protect the local community. We believe a number of cases were initiated in the community, but nevertheless, we will continue to enforce our robust COVID measures as we enter into our busiest period of the year. Most of these new cases are people who live in the Great Yarmouth and Lowestoft areas. Everyone is therefore reminded of the importance of following government guidance around social distancing, washing hands and wearing face coverings. Dr Louise Smith, Norfolk's Director of Public Health said, Norfolk's Local Outbreak Control Service is aware of a COVID-19 outbreak in Suffolk and is taking follow-up action with staff who live in Norfolk to give them full support. Norfolk County Council has also offered support to Suffolk County Council through our local contact tracing service. Meanwhile, the Unite Union claims Covid hit Bernard Matthews had left workers with a stark choice. The Unite Union has claimed inadequate sick pay and fare rises on worker buses may have contributed towards the risk of coronavirus transmissions at the Suffolk factory. It alleges statutory sick pay being received by staff who have to self-isolate has left some staff facing the choice of working while potentially infected or being unable to pay for food, rent or other bills. The union alleges Bernard Matthews informed them that minimum wage workers at the Holton plant, who need to self-isolate, would only receive statutory sick pay of £95.85p a week. Unite also argues that further potential issues were caused by an increase in cost to the company-run buses to the site, which went from £3.50 to £6 a day in August potentially forcing some staff to car share. A BBC report earlier this week indicated that car sharing was being looked at as a possible source of the disease spreading. The union described the measures as penny-pinching and claimed the company was putting the health of its workers and the public at risk. A spokesman for Bernard Matthews said This is a fast-moving situation and we are keen to do as much as we can to help our colleagues during this unsettling period. Therefore, it was decided this week, working in collaboration with the IMT and other stakeholders, that with immediate effect there will be no charge to use the company subsidised buses to all Bernard Matthews facilities. This decision will be continually reviewed And we would remind colleagues, it is absolutely essential all appropriate COVID secure measures are taken when using the bus including social distancing and the wearing of masks or face coverings at all times. I could have been killed. Weather brings down 400-year-old oak inches from woman's window. A 400-year-old protected oak tree lashed by winds fell within inches of a woman's bedroom, destroying her garden and damaging a neighbour's roof. (coughs) Brenda Krause, who has lived on back lane in Rollsby for six years, said she was lying in bed when she had an almighty crack at around 5.40pm on Friday, just one minute after her carer had come through her back door. My carer, Sue Bensley, usually comes between 5.30 and 6pm. If she'd have been a minute earlier, the tree could have flattened her, Miss Krause said. I absolutely loved that tree. It was a huge oak at the end of my garden, full of birds and acorns. It seemed so solid and probably get about three people standing with their arms stretched around the trunk. When I first heard the crack, I thought it was my wooden arch in the garden where I kept my bird feeders. I'd noticed it swaying all afternoon. Everything happened so quick. I called my neighbours, Andrew and Alan Thompson. They told me it wasn't the arch, it was much worse. The entire tree had come down and was inches from my bedroom window. Both myself and Sue were really shaken. It dawned on us that she could have been killed and so could I if it had just landed a little further or fallen a little earlier. The oak tree, which stood about 12 foot high, was subject to a protection order. Miss Krause's neighbour, Mrs Thompson said, all the oak trees around here are, but nobody ever comes and checks them. You could see the rot and fungus at the bottom of them. If that had been treated, this tree might have been saved. The tree was removed by tree surgeons on Wednesday, five days after extreme weather struck it down. But Miss Krause says she wants the trunk salvaged so she can remember its former glory. That tree was so beautiful and so was my garden, she said. Just think of everything it's seen all the time it's been here. Wildlife has always been the victim of these horrendous weather events. It's heartbreaking. Excitement as Netflix actor reveals he is filming on Norfolk coast. Filming is set to resume on a thriller set in Great Yarmouth after the shoot was interrupted by the coronavirus pandemic. Working to strict COVID-safe guidelines, a crew of around 50 will be shooting in and around the town for the next month after they were forced to pack up when lockdown was imposed. The dual language production about migration from Portugal to the town features Netflix actor Nuno Lopez, who played boxer in the series White Lines. The actor has shared multiple pictures of the streets around the seafront with his more than 460,000 Instagram followers. After seeing a post saying he was in Yarmouth, fans flooded his feed, declaring their intention to immediately visit the town and offering to show him round, as well as speculating as to why he was here. One user said, This is the news I needed for 2020. Great Yarmouth is close enough. I'm coming to get you. (laughs) And another said, We need to go now. He's literally down the road. Responding to one fan, he said he was working on a film about Great Yarmouth. Joe McIntosh, chief executive of arts charity Sea Change, said that Lopez was one of a handful of established actors working on the film, which also featured a community cast. He said the film Provisional Figures had grown from a theatre production he had initiated more than two years ago. He said, it all started quite a few years ago when we were building up the Out There Festival. Because we had so many Portuguese people and speakers, I wanted to explore some cultural participation and invited a producer to come and see the festival. He came and said, the place was completely amazing. They started coming back and we started developing a project together. A theatre show was developed called Provisional Figures which was performed at the Drill House as part of the Norfolk and Norwich Festival in 2018, winning a major national award in Portugal. On the back of that success, a feature film is being filled in the town with international and award-winning director Marco Martins on board. Production manager Leonard Altman said The team was likely to be in town until November. We are a small shoot. We're not taking over the town, he added. Great Yarmouth sees biggest rise in coronavirus cases, figures reveal. Great Yarmouth is seeing more daily coronavirus cases compared with other areas of Norfolk, new figures can now reveal. The figures from Public Health England data show that on September the 25th and September the 26th, the number of new coronavirus cases in the Great Yarmouth area increased by seven each day. The figures come as a number of new COVID-19 cases nationally topped 7,000 for a second consecutive day. At a Downing Street press conference, Prime Minister Boris Johnson said the government will not hesitate to put further measures in place if it needs be. During the briefing Chief Scientific Advisor Patrick Vallance said there was no room for complacency at all right now and that the situation was headed in the wrong direction. He said this virus spreads because of close contact with certain environments. We all need to make sure we reduce the number of contacts we've got the advisor added it was going to be absolutely critical that people self-isolate if they had symptoms. Public Health England data for the seven days from September the 26 also showed a larger rise in the rate of infection per 100,000 people in the Yarmouth area compared with figures for the previous week, the seven days up to September the 19th. In the seven days up to September the 26th, the rate was 45.3 compared with 21.1 the previous seven days. Other areas of Norfolk had the following rates. Breckland 9.3 up to September the 26th and 7.1 up to September the 19th. Broadland 5.4 and 9.2. East Suffolk 7.2 and 4.8. Kings Lynn and West Norfolk 8.6 and 11.9. North Norfolk 5.7 and 1. Norwich 13.5 and 12.8. And South Norfolk 12.1 and 8.5. The rate for England as a whole was 59 for the seven days up to September the 26th and 42 for the seven days up to September the 19th.
0: Thank you, Margaret. Before the last part of the news, we've time to listen to our regular contributors, Dusty, Margaret and Julie, with... Margaret's starting us off, and she's all at sea.
2: Well hello everybody, and thank you for letting me share with you some more of my memories, and this time they memories of the fishing. And of course when we talk about the fishing in Great Yarmouth, and this area, what we usually mean of course is the herring fishing. That once great industry, which had such an impact on the life and economy of the towns and villages, and on most, if not all, of the families. And it was not just the men. In one way or another, it seemed that it involved everybody. In the village where my own family originated, there were long periods when the women ran everything while their menfolk were away at the fishing. And it seems that in many ways, those independent women were ahead of their time. Though that would never have occurred to them. Of course, it was just the way things were. And it would be difficult for any young person learning about this, and also for many of us who, like myself, are much older, to understand the strong, almost mystical pull that the fishing held over the men at that time, during those earlier years of the 20th century. Yes, they knew all too well what a hard life it was, but was it a mixture of challenge, excitement, dread and relief? Who knows? But it was certainly very real. And foremost, of course, was the need to keep a roof over the family's heads and food on the table in those difficult days. And when they went off to the fishing, there would be the young boys, often only about 13 or 14 years old in the early days, going to sea for the first time, all excited, alongside their fathers or their older brothers and uncles, and warned to expect no favours, destined to bear everybody's beck and call and to spend hours down in the dark in the rope room coiling the ropes as the nets were hauled in, to the elderly and experienced men who might even be wondering if this fishing season will have to be their last. But, as we said, that hold was very real. And even at the end of World War I, in about 1919, my grandfather was in Dover with his family. He was a skipper, and his boat had been requisitioned for war work. He was offered a good position, skippering on the cross-channel ferries. Yes, they had cross-channel ferries even then. It would have been a secure and well-paid position. But no, he didn't want to plough the same 20 miles of sea every day. And he couldn't wait to get back to the fishing, and of course, he was only one of many. So, I have to admit that my own memories of the herring fishing are sparse and fragmented, and much of what I know, but not all, came from members of the family and from friends. This is because, when I was growing up in the years after World War II, the industry was already going into decline. I suppose this was partly due to all the social upheavals which had happened, changing times, and the massive overfishing which had taken place during the boom years. But in the heyday of the fishing, I've been told that the river Yair could be so crowded with the drifters that it was possible to cross from one side of the river to the other without getting your feet wet. Now, I never saw this, so far as I can remember, and certainly never experienced it, but I know that there were many who did. And the fishermen would follow the shoals of heron round the British Isles, sometimes as far as County Mayo in the far west coast of Ireland. And it was not unusual for a young man to bring home a bride from what seemed then to be a far away coastal town. One of my family married a girl from Penzance who settled down quite happily in Norfolk. But to get back to the local situation, what they called the home fishing, took place in the autumn, which was when so many of the Scotsmen brought up their boats down here. And I've been told that it was often a real race to get into the harbour with a night's catch and get the herring sold. And that there was a lot of desperate and often really fierce rivalry to get to the best positions on the quayside. Meanwhile, the Scottish girls had often come down here, following their menfolk, to gut the fish. And what a skilled bunch they were, working at incredible speed and with terribly sore hands from the salty brine. But somehow they also produced knitting in their precious spare time, and they sang their traditional songs in their lovely carrying voices. Regent Road in Yarmouth could be a very musical place. But however hard they worked, no Scotsman would ever put out to sea on a Sunday. Oh no. On the Lord's Day, they put on their best caps, gansies and mufflers and attended chapel faithfully. No doubt fortifying themselves with a weed ram or two later on. But who could blame them for that? And so in the autumn, it would all be happening with the home fishing. As dusk fell, and the smell of the fish hung over the town, a great full moon, the fishing moon, would rise over the sea, a wonderful sight from Gorston Cliffs. And though rough weather was a constant danger to the men and to the boats, I've been told that there were sometimes rare, quiet nights when the moon was full, the nets had been cast, the boats were still, and for a while, peace reigned. And from where your boat was laying, you could hear the voices of the men on the other boats. And maybe somebody would strike up a tune with an accordion and a song, and they would all join in. And though the word mystical would probably never have occurred to the men, yet they remembered it, and it had a hold on them. Mm. And there was a lovely little hymn too, that we learnt in school, and would sing during the fishing season. And the words went something like this. When lamps are lighted in the town, the boats sail out to sea. The fishers watch when night comes down, they work for you and me. At night time, when I go to rest, before I sleep, I pray that God will bless the fishermen and bring them back at day. God has watched all the fishermen upon the deep dark sea and brought them safely home again where they are glad to be. And I wonder, does that hymn ring any bells with any of you? It could be very moving, even as a child, to be in bed, maybe listening to the foghorn sounding to help keep our menfolk safe, whether they were fishing, whether they were in the lightships, or crossing over the sea to the other side. But in truth, it was very, very hard work. And many of the landladies in the area would accommodate the Scots girls. And then much of the house would have to be cleared and all the mats and rugs had to be taken up due to the sturdy rubber boots and aprons, not to mention the fish scales. And I'm wondering, how many of you remember Alan Smethurst, the singing postman, who was popular in the 60s and the 70s? And one of his songs, he say, A fisherman's life is a rare old job, when the winds blow and the women they mob. And I think that was certainly true. But then there were good times too and on the lighter side would come the day when the profits would be shared out in payment for all the hard work this was known as making up and the signal for great celebrations and merry-makings in the pubs now one of my relatives normally the most quiet and sober of men made a merry night of it in the fisherman's return at winterton and had to be taken home no doubt with much ribaldry and hilarity, drunk in a wheelbarrow. Early the next morning, still quite intoxicated, he kissed the milkman who had come in to help instead of his wife. I don't think he ever lived that down. But even though the number of boats coming for the fishing were much fewer in the 1950s, an annual occupation among us youngsters was going down to the quay to take their names and numbers. It was interesting, and I suppose educational too, as the two letters in the registration told you where the boat was from, and so YH was Yarmouth, LT was Lowestoft, PE was Penzance, and so on. But the decline must have led to a lot of hardship and readjustment, with men who had spent years at sea working in factories such as Birdseye, and they found that very hard as I know from experience in the family but the last big gathering of drifters which I remember took place in about 1957 where there must have been some kind of festival all I can recall is that I stood at the top of the steps at Galston which lead down to the lower prom and all the roads out at sea were full of a mass of drifters it was in the morning and two elderly men were nearby I heard one of them say, that make you think about the old days, don't it? And so the herring fishing eventually came to an end. Only the dear old Lydia Eva, wonderfully maintained by faithful volunteers' remains, moored here in Yarmouth near the town hall. But still men, and now women too, go to sea, not only to fish, but to carry the cargoes that we need. And in spite of all the modern inventions, they still face danger. And so the quote that comes to mind is this. Some went down to the sea in ships to trade on the deep waters. These men see your face, O God, and the marvels you work in the deep. And after all these years, my thoughts still go with them. And so, please, um, if I've left out anything that you think's important or made any mistakes, do call in and correct me. Meanwhile, thank you all for listening. Stay happy and stay safe.
0: Yes, one of the most profound memories of my preteen years were the regular bus trips mother, brother and myself took whilst returning home from my aunt's house in South Yarmouth to Newtown. When the Scots girls were in town, the Great Yarmouth Corporation Transport Department <laughs> rolled out the old wooden cedar buses on the number two route, and so we had a quite uncomfortable and a very fishy journey home. Whew. so here's dusty, continuing Margaret's theme.
3: Well, hello, everyone. here we are again, and Margaret's lovely story of the fishing immediately evokes for me the sights and sounds of those mellow October days, blue skies smell of the fish on the air, the cheery greetings of the fisher lads and lasses, all reminding us of the hard work that was life at sea for many a young lad. And so, you've probably heard this before, but this is a little bit of the, the Norfolk dialect that talks about it, which I called Conversation Piece. And I was after hearing a brief snatch of "Up Jump the Herring at one point, my father, he started to go to sea in 1892. He was only a boy 12 when he first went. He had a hard life on it, my father did. Oh, yes, and his mates and all. They used to tell some funny old tales in the pub of a night time. He weren't much more than a baby when his butt, what was called the boy John, went out Yarmouth one night. Quite calm it was. But then all of a sudden, that old wind that started to get up and that old butt was a rocking. plus he say <laughs> I was only scared then, because we feared to be grounded on a sandbank. Turned out to be Scrooby Sands, that did. Oh, that was cold enough to flare you. I began to think of mother at home then. Well, just then one of them old foreign butts from Peterhead she was, she come along, she stayed alongside, and she waited until lifeboat come, and then she made sure we got back into the harbour again. yes. He always had a soft spot for them Scotties out of that, my dad did. You know, that used to be a beautiful sight to see them old drifters down on that Yarmouth Quay on a Sunday morning. Them old Scottish boys never went out on a Sunday, do you see? Because something to do with their religion, I believe. You'd see them old buts so wide abreast you could walk across the river on them that you could. P.D. A.D. Because that'd be then and... You could all as tell where they come from. Then, about a quarter to twelve, the fishermen will come along with their Sunday best, old black cloth caps, straight out that old church into the pub for their sustenance. That's <laughs> a rum end. Bless my heart alive, they used to come to Yarmouth in their droves that they did. Gals and all, great old mothers <laughs> they were too. <laughs> Foreign and herring, they called it. They come in lorry noods. On a working day, you'd see them lined up at the barrels, their poor little old fingers a bandage gutting a fish with a speed of light. They knew how to work, them gals. And after a hard day, they go home to their digs, and their little old hands, they'd still be busy. All's happy they were, and knitting, and singing songs about their menfolk. How the time do fly, don't it? I seem like only yesterday, and now they don't come no more. The poor old sea have been overfished, and they have got to go somewhere else, in other stormy waters. Ah, there's a lot of old squid talking about hard work these days, but when you remember my father and the old days, oh, that funny make you think that do, bless that that do, and that make you wholly grateful for all of them what go down to the sea in them their ships. Now for something completely different. Hopefully just to put a smile on your face. There are many translations of the Bible, but you could say this one is different. So here's a bit of the Old Testament creation story according to Spike Milligan. The creation according to the trade unions In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. This was due to a malfunction at Lot's powerhouse. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. But Eastern Electricity Board said he would have to wait till Thursday to be connected. And God saw the light, and it was good. He saw the quarterly bill, and that was not good. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And so he passed his GCSE. And God said, let there be a firmament. And God called the firmament heaven, free phone 999. And God said, let the waters be gathered together unto one place and let the dry land appear. And in London, it went on the market at 600 pounds a square foot. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass. and The earth brought forth grass. And the Rastafarians smoked it. <laughs> and God said, let there be lights in heaven to give light to the earth. And it was so, except over England, where there was heavy cloud and snow on high ground. And God said, let the seas bring forth that which hath got life, flooding the market with fish fingers, fish burgers and grade three salmon. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, multiply and fill the sea, and let fowl multiply on earth, where Prince Charles and Prince Philip would shoot them. (coughs) And God said, Let the earth bring forth cattle and creeping things, and there came cows and the BBC Board of Governors. (coughs) And God said, Let us make man in our own image, but woe, many came out like spitting image. And he said, let man have dominion over fish, fowl, cattle and every creepy thing that creepeth upon the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you the first of free yielding seed. To you this shall be meat. And to the east sea, it will be a beef mountain.
0: Thanks Dusty. Julie now with a really nice tale about school.
4: Uh, before the advent of uh, Covid, I used to help out at a local school and this is a a tale of something I think I will remember forever. And I called it Roman conquest. Baby silver, blonde locks flopped over his forehead. In despair, two tiny lily white hands in forked positions secured it back while slumping forward, supported by very boyishly grubby elbows onto a desk. Sitting down beside him, I placed my hands on either side of his paper. He sat up, looking at me deeply, pleadingly, with the biggest beautiful blue eyes I've ever seen. Come on, Henry, you can do this, I said, with quiet encouragement. He gently stroked my hand, his eyes filled with water and silent tears began to flow. And I placed my spare hand upon his shoulder asking, what's the matter, little man? I just don't understand any of it, he whispered, ensuring his peers couldn't hear. I just don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. Watching this dear little boy, only eight years old, so upset over his lack of comprehension about where the Romans had planned invading our coastline, their ideas being scuppered by Celt tribes defending our shores, forcing said Romans to fight at huge disadvantage in the surf, touched my heart. Was it really that important to cause this amount of painful grief, as they didn't land here anyway? And where's Gaul, please? I've never heard of it. He sobbed, still stroking my hand. Why don't we find out together, I suggested. Each question carefully read, almost silently, searching for answers within the text, (laughs) resulted in satisfactory conclusions. He scribed, both arms protectively wrapped around, painstakingly achieved work. Protruding tongue clenched between tight lips as each letter, hesitantly and thoughtfully fashioned in pencil strokes, portrayed total concentration. Mission completed. Tears replaced by triumphant smiles, he proceeded to determinedly colour in both Roman and Celt figures, (coughs) outlined features on the flimsy study sheet cover. A magical moment occurred as I stood up. An outstretched hand touched mine, and the accompanying, grateful, beaming smile said it all. A very special bond had been established. Thank you, Julia Caesar.
0: Thanks, Julie. Actually, Julie did have a longer piece, but unfortunately there was a technical problem on the recording, all to do with mobile phones and mobile recorders, so apologies to her for that. Last part of the news then, so welcome back, Margaret One Bid to convert roadside
1: pub to residential use. A roadside watering hole could be converted into a home under proposals launched by its owners. A bid has been submitted to planners to call time on the Wheelwright's Arms in Beckles Road, Galston and turn its bar and pool into living space. According to its Facebook page, the pub reopened on September 7th with strict social distancing and Covid related changes including no parking to allow for more outside space plus removing the pool table. The bid submitted while it was still closed under lockdown would see the property become fully residential. The pub is owned by applicant Deborah Beavers and her husband who also live there and builds itself as a traditional public house with pool, darts, cars and other traditional pub games. There's been a pub on the site since at least 1856. In 2007 planners gave the green light for a pool room extension and in 2011 a smoking area was allowed No new building or renovations are proposed under the residential bid. Highway says it has no objections. A decision is due by October the 8th. What are those two DeLoreans doing on the Norfolk coast? An estimated 6,500 DeLoreans are still on the road and two of the cars, best known for a starring role in the Back to the Future films, can be found in a seaside village in Norfolk. The gull-winged vehicles, which won a cult following due to the movie's popularity, are owned by a pair of brothers, Alex and Tom Denny, who live in Caister. It was seeing the car on the screen, where at 88 miles per hour it broke through the barriers of time fired the brother's imaginations. Tom, 27, bought his DeLorean five years ago, importing it from California. It's a classic story. When we were little, we saw the films and loved it ever since then, he said. We've always wanted one. It's been our dream car to own. He remembers the first time he took his car to his brother's garage and seeing them side by side That was a bit of a strange time, he said. Tom spent three years repairing and refurbishing the car, getting to where it is now, where you can drive about and it looks nice, but it's never done. There's always another job to do, he said. Alex, 30, bought his one year before his younger brother. I paid for it and had to wait eight weeks for it to be shipped over. That was scary, he said. I couldn't believe my eyes when I got to the docks and saw it. It looked like a crock, but it was my crock, and I loved it. I drive it as often as I can. Repairing the car took two and a half years, and it was literally taking apart to the last nut and bolt. Taking the DeLoreans for a spin round the village is always fun, the brothers said. If you're driving in the car, almost every person will look at you and point at you, Tom said. You even find at Junctions, somebody sees you in it, they let you out first and give you a thumbs up. It brings joy, it's all part of a pop culture. They are also members of a DeLorean club which meets up four times a year and drives around before enjoying a meal. And if their DeLoreans could travel through time... I'd go back to 1980 so I can live through the 80s, Alex said. While Tom said, I wouldn't go far being a petrol head. I'd probably go back to the mid-60s or early 70s in America to check out the gold era of muscle cars. I feel really proud. Gallery on Coast exhibits children's paintings. Paintings created over the summer months have been exhibited at a gallery on the coast, by artists all under 11 years old. The gallery, number 36, The Art Workshop on Bells Road in Galston, has been running a children's art club since reopening after lockdown in July. Sharon Thompson, 54, who opened the space last year and runs the club with Tara Galvin, said. We didn't know how people would respond after lockdown. And we didn't know if parents would want their kids to come back. But all the regulars came back and we also got some new interest. So that was heartwarming. We had a really good positive summer with them. The gallery put on the exhibition at the end of the summer holidays to say thank you to the children. They worked hard and produced some really good art, Miss Thompson said. We felt the children should have the experience of being in an exhibition. I just feel really proud of what they're doing and that we're able to give them that opportunity. After bringing up four children of her own while working part-time as a teaching assistant, Miss Thompson graduated this year with a degree in Fine Art from the Norwich University of Art. She said the value of art for children is immense. I feel quite passionate about that. Art has taken a back seat in education, but creativity is in every walk of life. It comes into all the different subjects at school. Art allows them to be an individual. Not every child is academic, and art is another voice. It's another way of expressing yourself. I think with children, they're not set in their ways. They're open to every kind of experimentation. The messier, the more fun, she said. Her purpose in opening the gallery was to prove that painting and sculpture are for everyone. I think that galleries can be quite intimidating places, but we've opened in the local community and we always want it to be a place people feel comfortable in, she said. We're getting people in who wouldn't ordinarily walk into a gallery. hosting the children's workshop means they are making the gallery a normal place at an early age," she added. Millions of pounds to boost regeneration schemes in Norfolk and Suffolk. More than three million pound has been handed to Norfolk and Suffolk to kick-start generation projects, including the creation of a school of nursing and to help create a new hub for digital businesses. Norwich, Great Yarmouth, Kings Lynn and Lowestoft are among 101 cities and towns which hope to get millions of pounds through the Government's Towns Fund scheme. They have submitted ambitious regeneration projects but an early release of some £80 million of accelerated funding means councils have been awarded cash to start work on schemes Norwich whose Towns Fund bid includes proposal for a digital hub in the city centre where digital businesses can start up and grow along with a revamp for the halls has been given a hundred thousand pound Alan Waters lead of Norwich City Council said we welcome the release of this extra one million pound ahead of the announcement of the outcome of our bid for £25 million. West Norfolk Council has been awarded £750,000 including for a school of nursing at the College of West Anglia and to make the town centre more attractive. Proposals for the nursing school have been drawn up by the Queen Elizabeth Hospital and the College of West Anglia with the support of West Norfolk Council and other partners. Great Yarmouth is to get £750,000 to buy equipment for a special winter programme. That will be a coordinated package to animate the seafront, town and wider borough and to capitalise upon its growing reputation as the national capital of circus. Lowstoft has also been awarded £750,000. That money is to create a pocket park on land in the town. Keep our village a village. Residents launch fight back against developers. Residents have been told they may have a once in a generation chance to shape the next hundred years of development and ensure that their village remains a village. Opposition has been grown in Hemsby in recent years, with many villagers worried that large housing developments will change the nature of their community. On Thursday, Hemsby's neighbourhood plan steering group and members of the public met to discuss the plan. The group's Vice Chair, George Waterman, said the plan will have the same legal clout as Great Yarmouth Borough Council district-wide plan and urged residents to take part in a survey. What we say in this plan as residents will help dictate the last wave of development in our village for the better part of this century, he said. It's a once in a generation opportunity. Steering group member, Tracy Hutchinson said, the plan would lead the drive to keep the village a village. She said, over the past three years in Hemsby, We've had over 500 houses built, and just as we've all processed the Pontins' development, we've got another one for 150 houses at Highfield Equestrian Centre. It's currently a horse stable and fields, and I know we're all singing from the same hymn sheet here when we say we want our open spaces left alone. One resident said she was worried about the potential strain on the doctor's surgery. Miss Hutchinson replied that you only had to watch what happens on flu jab day to see the pressure the village was facing and parking chaos almost inevitable. Mr Waterman said that since it was impossible to stop development altogether, the neighbourhood plan was essentially a managed retreat and the best chance residents had of helping to check over development. He said... We can voice our need for affordable housing so our children can live here and can make sure the money from developers' 106 agreements is actually spent on the village itself. He added, Developers aren't evil, they aren't sent to destroy us. We just need to let them know how we feel about what they're doing and this is our chance. Borough Councillor James Bensley said, It's tempting for people to think what they say has no impact on planning decisions. But actually, this plan is a template for how we want the village to look in 20 to 30 years' time. Independent school closed after confirmed case of coronavirus. An independent school for young people struggling in mainstream education has closed following a confirmed case of coronavirus. The Catch-22 school in North River Road, Great Yarmouth will remain shut until October the 12th following the positive test result. A statement from Philip Hinchliffe, head teacher for Include Schools Norfolk, part of the Catch-22 group said, following the confirmation of a confirmed case of coronavirus The Great Yarmouth site of Catch-22 is closed until October the 12th. All staff and students who attended school on September the 24th and 25th will be required to self-isolate for 14 days. The staff team will begin a timetable for all students to continue their education from September the 30th and welfare checks will be completed by our dedicated team of support staff. Include Schools Norfolk operates across three sites in Norwich, Kings Lynn, and Great Yarmouth and charges annual fees of up to £21,000 for its county council referred pupils, many of whom have been excluded from mainstream schools, special schools or pupil referral units. The school's website says it had 101 students aged 11 to 16 on its roll. Overall, it works with children aged 4 to 18, providing full-time, alternative, secondary education and support for those with special educational needs. And good news for Galston, because I love Galston. It's all we wanted. Treasured Meadow will remain a family leisure site. A former children's fun park loved by a seaside town will be kept for community use rather than sold to developers. At a meeting of Great Yarmouth Borough Council on September the 29th, councillors voted unanimously to retain Gorston's Pops Medal for existing use for at least 25 years. Leader Carl Smith said, The recommendation is that we sell the Pops Medal site. £100,000 for existing use but add a further covenant that the property can't be used for any other purpose for the next 25 years. We received 13 valid bids overall but the one we've accepted recognises Pops Meadow as an asset to the community. The site will be free entry and provide family entertainment. Facilities will include a mini golf course, eating area, small operated children's ride and an entertainment area. A garden area will also be developed as a place for all ages to access and enjoy. Paul Wells, councillor for Galston, said he was relieved the council had put community first. A lot of residents were cynical about the proposals but I'm happy that on this occasion the council has focused on the community rather than capital receipts, he said. Barbara Wright echoed his sentiment. She said this plan was all she wanted for the residents and that she was over the moon with the proposals. I hope the 25-year covenant soon becomes another 25 years, she added. Deputy Leader Graham Plant said he had received no end of correspondence about Pop's Meadow but that the decision was the best outcome we could have hoped for. Jade Martin said that local families, including her own, had such fond memories of Pops Meadow, the now derelict site on Galston's seafront, and that she was sure the new site would generate many more. Earlier this year, when it was agreed at a policy and resources meeting in January, the site would be put up for sale and there were fears among residents it would become another housing complex. A petition asking for a ban on any further development on the land, set up eight months ago, reached over 860 signatures. According to Mr Plant, this covenant could be a comfort to all those who were worried about a private enterprise taking over this cherished community space. Well done, Goldston atmospheric 900-year-old priory up for sale for same price as three-bedroom semi. A flint-flecked former priory that has hosted Kings of England is up for sale. The Grade 1 listed building in Great Yarmouth carries a price tag of £150,000 drawing a flurry of interest already. The Priory, next to Great D'Armouth's Minster Church and adjoining a nursery, is up for sale, following the collapse of the Great Yarmouth Community Trust at the end of last year. Guy Gowing, Managing Partner at Arnold's Keys, which is selling it for the liquidators, said it was in the top 5% of listed buildings in the UK. The large landmark building boasts a great hall with a huge ceiling, and is crammed full of architectural and historic marvels like stone mullion windows and exposed rafters. He described it as an atmospheric building that was priced to attract interest and could go for more. He said there had already been interest from community groups and developers. Elsewhere in the seaside town, £150,000 by a three-bed semi-detached house he said the 900 year old building was founded by bishop herbert de Losinger in 1101 and was most recently used as the priory center the property particulars says the rare opportunity building is suitable for a variety of possible uses subject to planning consent including residential conversion or continued community use Founded as a Benedictine Priory in 1101, the building was enlarged in 1260 and the hall was rebuilt in 1300. It was home to 15 monks until it was dissolved in 1539 and played host to King Richard II in 1382. For many years housing the Priory School it was significantly refurbished in 1978 and again at the turn of the millennium. This is a landmark historic building right in the centre of Great Yarmouth, said Mr Gowing. At 8,475 square feet it is a substantial property which includes the 2,500 square feet Great Hall as well as offices, a commercial kitchen, a courtyard and other areas. So it is a versatile space, which would suit a variety of occupiers. Offers are invited for the freehold of the Priory in excess of £150,000. Well, that's all the news from me for this week. And I just want to end on something which might cheer us up, (laughs) us all of a certain age. What is a senior citizen? It is one that was here before the pill, television, frozen foods, contact lenses, credit cards, and before man walked on the moon. For us, time sharing meant togetherness, not holiday homes, and a chip meant a piece of wood. Hardware meant nuts and bolts, and software wasn't even a word. We got married first and then lived together and thought cleavage was something that butchers did. A stud was something that fastened a collar to a shirt and going all the way meant staying on the double-decker to the bus depot. (laughs) We thought that fast food was what you ate in Lent. Big Mac was an oversized raincoat and crumbet we had for tea. In our days grass was mown, pot was something you cooked in, coke was kept in the coal house and a joint was cooked on Sundays. We are today's senior citizens, a hardy bunch when you come to think how the world has changed. Well, that might have cheered you up or not. Anyway, till the next time when with you, goodbye, keep safe, keep well and thank you for listening.
0: That's all we have for you for this edition of Grapevine. Grapevine, volume 40, number 40, is copyright 2020 of the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association. The content in the main is adapted from the publications of Arts & Limited and is used with their consent. However, the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association accept responsibility for editorial decisions made for this recording. Aileen is next week's newsreader, so please join us online once again for that. In the meantime, from Margaret 1, Margaret 2, Dusty and Julie and myself, as usual, it's bye for now, have a great week and keep well and safe.